I was walking down the street in downtown Baltimore, and I looked up at these beautiful buildings. And I said, wow, I wonder who does all the carving and sculpturing for these buildings. So I said, you know what? Let me get a sculpture that's, that does this in Baltimore. And his name is Mr. Sebastian. He's done work all over the United States. He's done work at the Senate Building in Washington, D.C., the National Basilica in Baltimore, and the St. Patrick Cathedral in New York City. He has the art of carving. He's done it for over 10 years. I'm so excited to share his story on the next No Picks of the Dark podcast. We're back to business 2022. OpenWorks is Baltimore's largest makerspace, offering access to tools ranging from 3D printers to welder and training in how to use them. OpenWorks also offers affordable studio space, a coffee shop, and fun-free events throughout the year. But OpenWorks is more than a public workshop. It's a community of creative professionals, students, seniors, entrepreneurs, and makers of all kinds. Check out the website at www.openworksbmore.org or Instagram at open underscore works underscore bmore for class schedules, membership options, and Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. You know, I've been waiting to do this interview probably for six months. It's been that long. And I'm so excited to have this gentleman gentleman on today. Uh, he is doing amazing work in the Baltimore artist community. He's doing big things. Every time I see him, he's on somebody's uh, IG stories or he's on an IG talking about sculpting, sculpturing and things of that nature. And he's also a cuse guy. So without further ado, Mr. Sebastian, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, Aaron. How are you doing, man? Thanks for having me on. Hey, man, you're big time out here. I'm just glad to be in your aura. That's all. I'm just hanging out with you, man. <laughs> How are you, man? No, don't, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Don't believe the hype. So, right. Mr. Sebastian, tell us a little bit, tell people a little bit about you. Tell a little bit about you and what you got going on. Whew. Well, um, I'm an artist and I'm based here in Baltimore. So, obviously, I'm blessed. Um, basically, I'm a freelancer. I think that's based, the best way to describe it. So, I came to Baltimore originally for graduate school. Um, prior to that point, I had been an apprentice at the stone shop outside of DC for about three, four years. And then prior to that point, as you said, I was at Syracuse. So I kind of have had a path that started in CUSE as an illustrator. I was an illustration major when I was there. And during that time, I went and studied in Italy through Syracuse's abroad program, which is awesome. Um, and while I was there, I decided, man, I want to figure out the stone carving thing. So I actually came back. And then between my junior and senior year at CUSE, I got a job at a stone shop. And so that after graduation from undergrad turned into a full-time gig where I was you know, an apprentice there 100% of my time. And after a few years of that, I, basically when I got to a level of proficiency, I went back to school at the Reinhardt School of Sculpture, which is here in Baltimore at MICA and was there for two years. And I've been here ever since. So. That's kind of how that went. I love it. I always ask people, um, where are you from? Are you from, where, where are you from? Are you from Maryland? Are you from Virginia? From Virginia. Okay. Yeah, actually, I grew up in Virginia. <clears throat> so, you know, a couple hours from here, unless it's rush hour, in which case it's five. Um, but yeah, not, not too, too far. Um, but yeah, kind of in the D.C. metro area. So we're always asked this question. And I'm going to ask, so I'm going to give you a bonus question with, with this question also. Oh, so, yeah, I'm not having, I didn't tell you this part, but. What's your favorite childhood memory? Let's, refer, let's talk about that first. 
Mm, okay. So yeah, that goes back to Virginia for sure. So <clears throat> I was thinking about this, honestly, not just for the podcast, it is an art thing. I mean, when I was in school in Virginia, I benefited like from a really, really strong public education program. And in Virginia, they have something called the Virginia Governor School, which basically is like a summer program that exists for all disciplines. But at the time when I was there, it was kind of like the height of things you could do as an art student. And so my art teacher was really on top of it, Mrs. Burns back at Osborne Park. And so she always had her kind of upper level art students applying for this program. Because if you got in, it was basically you spent the summer at a college just doing whatever it was you applied to do, in my case, visual arts. And you had like the full resources of the school and these professors and you were with all these other kids from around the state who had also applied. And so basically it was like this, you know, magical wonderland of like doing artwork all day, every day, just focusing on that thing. And that was the very first time I got to do stone carving. And that's basically why I was interested in applying. There was like a class, I got to see the catalog before I applied and there was a stone carving class. And I was like, yeah, that, I wanna do that. That's my thing. And I was like 16 at the time. Um, so that was probably like the biggest thing. I remember doing that and thinking like, this is it, I could do this forever. Um, this is like what it's about for me. Now, growing up, did you have a family of artists? Uh, just uh, where did that come <laughs> No. From? Always curious where that comes from. No, 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 no. My family, they, they all have real jobs. Um, they're like very, very educated, uh, very intelligent people who went on to do <laughs> smarter things than me instead of banging on rocks all day. Um, no, my, so my father uh, is an engineer. Um, my mother, during my childhood, did kind of like a lot of admin stuff but she before I was born and my sister and I she was a steno she was a stenographer so she can type like 90 words a minute on a standard keyboard yeah it's crazy um so my dad is a civil engineer my sister uh is now referred to as Dr. Martirana she's the, the smart one she's a, a pharmacist you got a lot you got a lot going on in your family but hey you're doing huge things though come on now like don't let's let's not sure change yourself yeah I, I've had a good run um I see what you're doing I can't do it I can't do it. So, I mean, I, I just get nervous. I'm nervous. I get nervous watching what you're doing. I'm like, hey, I think about my fingers, and we'll talk a little bit about that and what things about you know safety and it's, it's, mm. what you do. I'm like, I bet not come hungover to work doing that. So we'll we'll get yeah. into that. We'll get into that's that. right. No, it's not a good place to be if you're hungover. Don't so, talk. well, I had I gotta ask this question because there's a lot of Syracuse people that are listening to this episode. All right. What made you right. go to Syracuse? What made you go to Syracuse, a university out of all places? Well, you know, again, I think it kind of in part goes back to a teacher I had in high school who had was familiar with that program for some reason and had me look into it. I also had kind of like a glancing familiarity with upstate New York because most of my family, mother and father's side, are all from that region. You know, my parents were smart and they got out. They're like, we're done with this winter stuff. Uh, they moved to Virginia, like very specifically, like they were like weird they're done. They both had grown up in like upstate New York and um, their whole lives and were over it, but college and everything. And so, but the rest of my family, a lot of them were up there uh, from Pennsylvania. So I was somewhat familiar, um, but basically Cuse had like the best undergrad program for art within a kind of a big and major university. And I, you know, as a kid, I was kind of hedging. I wasn't like really sure if the art thing was for completely for me exactly. So I still wanted to basically be able to be in a position where if I went to school and decided to transfer out of it, 
my degree or my credits to that point would mean something. Um, you know, also I went to Syracuse. I was in, uh, I, I got a really big scholarship that helped and made big, big difference. And they also had this honors program that I was part of when I was there. So I was all, you know, kind of academics driven to that point too. So I was able to kind of think again, if I need to basically pull the ripcord and get out of this art thing, these credits won't have been a full, you know, waste of a year and a lot of money. Um, I'm still going to be able to transfer that to somewhere else. You know. hey, shout out to V. Is it VPA? Yeah. Mm -hmm. VPA. Okay. So I was actually in that major also. So yeah, I know. It sounds like we somehow crossed over in that time. Although it's, you know, it's like always people are like, oh, I had a friend that went to Syracuse. Did you know him? Like, I don't know. There's 18,000 students there. So <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't. It's funny. Good. Give, give the audience a quick story about. So my neighbor knew Sebastian. And I, I didn't know who he was. And she was like, well, I have a friend who went to Cuse. And I'm like, oh, I went to Cuse. And my oh, neighbor, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, she was like, you got to <laughs> meet him. He's a Cuse guy. And I'm like, same year? I'm like, yeah, we're same year. Oh, I think we're 03, right? You're 03 with yep. me? Same yeah. year. And I'm like, we could have, we had to cross paths in 03. I mean, it gets smaller, to. you know, towards your senior year. It gets really, really small. Right. I like, you know, everybody and whatnot. So it's really cool that we finally met eventually and whatnot and get you in the show, which is really cool. Here's a, here's yeah. a, here's a twist question I didn't, I didn't tell you about. Oh. What was your favorite year at Syracuse? Favorite year at Syracuse? Probably my <laughs> my junior year. Okay. For sure. Uh, because first, I spent half of it in Italy. So there's that. Not to knock Cuse, but that was pretty rad. Because, um, of course, for me, that definitely changed well, everything, you know, it didn't, it didn't change my major because like that scholarship wouldn't be an extended. <laughs> so there was, the five-year program was never even like a glimmer in my eye. I hear about that all the time. And I was like, no, not even, not even a thing. Um, but it, it changed my focus for sure. Uh, you know, incidentally, I happened to meet my now wife uh, there during that time. Uh, not a Syracuse student, but we had a studio together. Um, so that of course was pretty pivotal. But then when I, I came back, uh, I moved in with a great uh, group of friends there, which were awesome. And I mean, honestly, my senior year was pretty rad too, now that I think about it, because I had done so much during those first three years. By the time I was in my second semester senior year, I basically, God, I, hadn't thought, I had to take classes just to maintain full-time student status. Otherwise, my scholarship would go away. So I think my first semester senior year was pretty pretty hardcore because I was like finishing up you know thesis stuff a lot of work just really buckling down to get basically at the time a lot of painting done lots of painting but I think that second semester man I went snowboarding like four or five days a week hey. it, it, was, hey. it was pretty good I tell people um, my, my, my that last semester was a blur too so all, all yeah I, all I remember is we went in the national championship for basketball and that was yeah right <laughs> so yep. I definitely remember that so all right give little people a little background about the Cuse so your first gig out of college, mm -hmm. what was that? What was that? Well, Go ahead. back to the stone shop because okay. I had between my junior and senior year started working at this stone shop. Uh, and then basically during break, like, you know, I wasn't going to like Cancun for spring break. I went back to the shop. <laughs> so any break I had Christmas break, spring break, all that stuff. I was basically back there. Um, so yeah, I went straight from school, packed it up and went, right back to working at that place. So that was the first uh, gig and really my last full-time like J-O-B job where I had like a boss and a time card and 
that stuff because I went from there essentially to graduate school. And then from there, I've been on my own. Uh, and now to be clear, when I say on my own, it's like, I've had a lot of support. I have a partner company here in Baltimore. I work with um, Hillgartner Natural Stone Company houses essentially my carving studio. And they've been in Baltimore since, geez, they were founded in like 1863. Mm. So yeah, they're the oldest like continually operational stone fabrication shop in the country. So I've been a, kind of a partner with them since I was in grad school, actually, just looking for, at the time, material. That's how I ran across them. And we just started talking. And a confluence of coincidences led to me ultimately kind of, you know, they invited me to put my studio into their stone shop. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. They had had a carver there that had worked with them for years, but he kind of got, was older and he had retired, I think, literally two years maybe before I showed up to town. So it just really worked out well uh, in that regard. Hey, that's a nice gig. I know a lot of my college friends who didn't have jobs and after college, they were looking for a year. So that's really cool that you had that lined up already set up in, in those connections and whatnot. So mm -hmm. how did you get into like, you know, carving stone and restoration and stuff like that? Like, how does one even like, I looked into it and I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Like, is it like a passion? Is it like something where you're like, I want to know how they did like, you know, um, not Rushmore, something like that. Is there like, is it something where you saw something in Europe? You're like, wow, this is really cool. I really want to like, how does one even walk us through that? Walk us through that. Well, from an interest perspective, I mean, it was something I know as a kid, I always found fascinating just because like I was into art from a little kid from as a very little kid, I was, you know, always interested in art. And then as a very little kid, I was very, like, you know, fidgety and I had trouble sitting still and all that kind of thing. And they realized early on, if they just let me draw during class, I was a much better student. <laughs> um, and so, so that really fostered that. But then of course, you know how it is, especially like, you know, back in the nineties or whatever, it's like, oh, this is the kid, like they're into books. My parents did not like let me have video games. So it was like, I just got art books from all my relatives. We're like, yeah, he likes art and like, really? I would rather have like G.A. Joe's and Legos and stuff, but like get them smart books. Um, so I had seen all these things in the books and I like I had an understanding like that to my younger mind, like stone carving was the highest form of art because it looked the coolest and it looked the hardest to do. So there was an interest from that level. And then, like I said, I got to do some of it when I was um, 16 at the governor's school when I had loved carving prior to that point I always done a lot of like literally whittling wood carving with like knives you know cutting myself up by accident uh that kind of thing so but yeah as you said it's difficult to get into you can't really dabble in stone carving as much as like other media because the tools are just hella expensive and the the resources you need to work them are expensive materials heavy and difficult to come by sometimes um so I mean truly aside from the one unique program I got to do, it, it's a matter of, in a lot of cases, getting a job, finding a place where they're willing to hire you, you know, and in my, my case, you know, again, I'd been made aware of this stone shop that was nearby because it had like a lot of, you know, these kind of famous, you know, carvers really, like I'd say locally that people knew of that were doing the stuff there, uh, had worked in and out of that shop. It basically formed in that area because of the National Cathedral Project way back, you know, decades ago and so I just kind of showed up with like a resume I was like let me do this stuff and so they were good in that again I was hired but I, I should be clear actually that that job it sounds sexier than it was like 
I was working in the stone shop, but I mean, half the work they're doing there at minimum is like kitchen countertops, thresholds, vanities, benches, like moldings. I mean, I polished miles and miles and miles of granite countertops over those years. And it was like incredibly boring and I did not love it, but you know, it's very much like the Mr. Miyagi style wax on wax off of learning something. I got really good at like textures and understanding the material and working with all these various tools that in a way that you don't really get just taking a workshop or a class somewhere because it's not every day and it's not intensive. And that being there for that many years, you basically learn stuff as it's being done as jobs come in. So the restoration side of things and how to manage, whether it's cleaning the materials or patching or fixing or preparing or repairing or Dutchman and replacing chunks of buildings and things like that. It was all like basically real world skill building at the time. Um, even if it wasn't the most fascinating thing, everything I do now is like an extension of something I had to do for practical terms. It was just, I wanted to be fully proficient in stone carving before I left the shop to go back to school to essentially apply mm. concepts to the skills, you know, as opposed to the other way around where, you know, a lot of people have all these ideas, but they don't know how to use the tools. So they really struggle and then they bang on a stone for however many weeks and they end up still with like a lump that's slightly smaller than the original lump they had. Um, so I wanted to get past that point so that the, the, the you know, the, the technical side of handling the material and handling the tools felt second nature. So now I feel much more like my chisels are like brushes. I still like I'm painting, I'm still an illustrator. I just happen to be working with three dimensions and with rocks. Uh, that's dope. I mean, I've seen a lot of your work and I'm just like, again, I'm blown away by it. I mean, you've done, well, thank you. I mean, you did one of the world. Well, I don't need to talk about, it, but it was one that was for a president <laughs> that was around. That I thought was fascinating that you did. It. And it was like, the depiction was to a T and I was like, wow, that is amazing. Like that to me, that's gold leads into my next question. You're creative. Like, where do you get your creative juices from? Where does it all come from as far as, like, how do you reset and how do you get yourself into that frame of mind of being so creative as how you are right now? Because you've done some work that I'm just, like, blown away with. I'm like, how's one even come with that concept? What do you even think about? How do you visualize it? Is it, like, on a 3D board before you do it? Or is it something like that? How do you even take us through that process of creative, being a creative sculptor? Well, I mean, there's these things come, the ideas themselves, if that's what you're asking about, you know, those come from different, different places. And often it really is just like a, like a flash in my head in an image. I just picture something as an image. And I think most people do that. You know, it's just that the difference is I'm like, all right, I need to make that thing. So then that's where the process really starts is to disconnect from the idea that I had is just like a quick image in my head, trying to basically, you know, hit the screenshot on that, save that, and then translate that into something that other people can see. And so I think that basically everything almost always starts with a drawing for sure. Everything fundamentally starts with drawing. Um, and so I'll go from there and kind of then go through the same process that I learned back in school where I'm basically doing drawings, research, reference gathering, and then in some cases creating either models or scale drawings to help me produce whatever it is I'm working with in stone. So sometimes the stone project, in particular if it's a commission, We'll have a model, sometimes the model's a maquette, like a tiny version of the thing. Sometimes it's like a full one-to-one, -one full-size model, which allows me to use a, a pointing apparatus, which is like a different technique altogether that allows me to find points arbitrarily in a block of stone. 
Uh, and sometimes I'm just working from photographs and stuff like that, or drawings and kind of measurements to figure out what it is I'm doing. You know, a few things that have, have started from just direct observation of things where I, I'm not trying to be quite as technically accurate to something in real life, but that usually happens when the work is my own. It's something that was my idea where I'm not basically answerable to any client or committee or board or institution. So, you know, if I change something or like do something different on the fly, no one's there to like complain about that being wrong or not what they expected. So yeah, it's, it's just like, there's a couple different ways to kind of go about the process. It just depends on the project at the time. And what has been like a project that we can highlight that you've done in Baltimore or in DC, an area that somebody could drive by tomorrow and check it out. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly partnered with Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Hartford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth-watering cuisine from falafels to scallops and everyone's favorites, honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday and for brunch Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy, and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials. The No Picks After Dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's Coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you, there's something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, online ordering, carry out, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Hartford Road. Open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be filled by Zeke's. <laughs> um, let's see, someone could drive by and check it out. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of, so there's all kinds of things that involve the more like commissioned institutional stuff, like letter carving and things like that, or architectural things. So if you were to walk through Baltimore, you know, you could look up around City Hall and notice like some of the window surrounds look like particularly white. That's because they're a little newer. <laughs> and I carved those because uh, they've got to come off or for falling off the building. Um, you know, the William Donald Schaefer statue downtown, I didn't do the bronze sculpture, but I, you know, I carved all the letters that go around the bottom of it, describe him and the jobs he had throughout his career. Uh, and in DC, let's see, of course, the biggest thing is, <clears throat> Let's see, two years ago, I spent the whole summer in D.C. doing um, the carving at the Eisenhower Memorial, which is right across the street from the Air and Space Museum. Mm -hmm. So I was invited by Nick Benson, who's like this like kind of preeminent uh, letter carver typographer uh, in the country. He's been doing memorial work there for decades, generations, really. And so he put together a team of carvers to work there and create, you know, all the lettering on this monument, which is basically the largest example of carved typography, I would guess, in the country at minimum. I mean, there's 4,000 some letters there. And um, I carved just over a thousand of them. So it's, you know, <laughs> kind of neat to go by and see that. So yeah, you, rem you remember the process of having done that for so long, like in, you know, working with these other 
carvers there. Um, and then, you know, there's other things in, in various places you drive by the, you know, the, that black granite gilded gold leaf sign on uh, was it Charles Street at Loyola University. Yeah, yeah. That one, you know, that kind of stuff. That's it's a little cool. more, up more in your neighborhood. Um, that is in my you know, hood. I'm going to drive yeah. by that day too. You know, I'm going to drive by it now. Take a picture. Right. Of it. Yeah. Send it to you. Right. That's, that's awesome. I mean, to hear that, I mean, that's just, that's amazing. You know, you're working with your hands and you're just, I mean, me, I mean, have you ever had any accidents like as far as like just being careful? Because I mean, your hands, I mean, are your hands even insured? Because like you're doing type of work, you know, that is your money maker, your hands. Man, you know, they're not, although you're people keep asking me that. It's starting to make me nervous. I'm gonna have to do <laughs> I mean, although I so I should be clear though, I do have health insurance and I do have it through my wife. Um, because she has like a real, you know, day job. And so my insurance and there's i'm lucky there's other ways we could get it to various institutions and guilds and memberships and unions and stuff that i'm a part of like for being a professor for instance at micah but um i i did years ago um luckily geez even before we had kids as i said i don't know how gruesome do you want me to get <laughs> hey, we, hey, we're being honest we're being honest we're just being honest. well so i you know again a, just like a again a silly little freak thing but I was working on a project where I had a model. <clears throat> and again, the model was set up so I could use this pointing machine where it's basically like a three-dimensional slide rule. You move from one model to the stone and back and forth. And the model itself was on a wooden kind of frame. And in the wooden frame, you have set screws where the model sits. And I went to move the model, it, the base itself. It was pretty heavy. And I grabbed onto the wooden base and pulled it to move it. And by doing that, I accidentally um, basically pierced my thumb with one of the screws and it hit the bone. And, you know, it hurt a lot at the time and I did a lot of cussing, but I really didn't think much of it. I was just pissed off at myself for having done this. And fast forward a few days and basically my thumb was hurting like crazy, but my entire arm was hurting in a way like I truly had never felt pain like that before. And I'd done some painful things over the years but that was like next level and what it turned out was that i had pierced the flexor tendon sheath in my thumb and because you don't have blood in a tendon sheath you have what's called synovial fluid but it's a great place for infections to form and so that puncture wound is just like you know you think of a cat bite with germs on something that's a puncture it seals itself and in that case because there's no blood there's nothing to fight that infection so my tendon the sheath itself was like swelling from the inside out and so ultimately they had to cut my hand open and to, to release basically the infection without getting into way too much detail. And so that was gnarly. That's one of those things that if this had happened like a hundred years ago, I'd have probably lost that hand or just would have killed me. Um, so yeah, God bless modern medicine. Yeah. Science, science people. <laughs> there you go. Science. For real. Oh, um, you know, <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was late. I was in the hospital for, I think five days, six days or something like that. Cause wow. they had to take, take me apart. Um, you know, the only saving grace was it happened to be during the winter Olympics that year. So I like, I learned like all the rules to like curling and the skeleton and luge and like, you know, how to score figure skating that kind of stuff. Cause I had nothing to do. This was before Instagram or something where I was just going to be scoring through my phone with my other hand for hours. So yeah, that was by far the, the worst like injury I've ever had to something. And I was again, very, very lucky that 
not only did it get caught when it did, and that, again, I had uh, really good medical insurance. So that's like a tip. I've had some friends, you know, you get out of grad school or something like that, or you're on your own, you don't get even like catastrophic insurance or something like that, get something because, you know, you don't want to either sidle yourself or somehow your family with like a ridiculous, crazy freak nature type, you know, not your fault, but wicked bill like that, that would have been nuts. I mean, that, that totally makes sense to me. That totally does. Um, so what collaborations have you, are you working on right now or what collaborations you could toot on like that you've done before that you can like, it was really cool. Sounds like the one with the Eisenhower collaboration sounds amazing. Uh, any other collaborations that you could say that was like, wow, I can't believe I'm actually in the room or doing this with somebody else. You know, it's, so it's funny as far as the carving things, you know, I don't, I generally am kind of like on my own when it comes to the physical carving of those things, because, you know, just the nature of the work. Although I do have some work coming up that I, I may have to put together a team, some really big stuff, but um, I think the, the coolest kind of collaborations I've worked on have been things where I needed something to accentuate the carving process that really wasn't in my bailiwick. So most recently I worked on this one project where I was carving this boulder of a stone called it's a gabbro diabase, which is basically harder than granite. There's this two and a half ton boulder. And I was really bashing up my hands and breaking a lot of tools working on it. And I needed a real custom set of tools. So I got to, I, I happened to know a local blacksmith who had contacted me about making some hammers at one point. And I was like, hey, this is a good opportunity to take this guy up on this. And so I worked with uh, Nick Iris. He has a studio down in the Old Town Mall area of Baltimore. Um, you should probably talk to him someday. He's really, really good. And so we created like a custom mall set, which is basically a set of two hammers that are made to strike each other and strike material at the same time. So you get a lot more power and it's a lot safer than basically holding a chisel against the stone and striking that, which was really messing up, not just chisels, but also my hands. And so that was an awesome collaboration where I got to basically go into his blacksmith shop and he let me do some of the forging of these like custom uh, hammerheads, which was rad. <laughs> you know, so so that's again the thing I would never be able to. I don't I don't know how to. I mean, I dabbled in like forging and like metalsmithing and like I know how to weld, but nothing like that level of work. Um, and then another really cool, again, a collaboration to in support of the carving was something I did over at the zoo here in Baltimore, over in like uh, Druid Hill, uh, uh, the Druid Lake Park, that area. Not a lot of people realize there's these statues in these places along springs. And I think they called them the seven springs. And they're these old statues where way back in the day, like over a hundred years ago, they had these families from Baltimore essentially sponsor these monuments at these natural springs where people could like legit go and just get water coming right out of the ground. And there's some of them are like really elaborate. And this one there had become really deteriorated over the years and the family wanted to restore it. And so the best way to do that, to basically replace, like it was missing like fingers and toes and like part of its face and all this kind of stuff. And there was like a, um, it was holding like a bird, but the bird had been completely destroyed. And so the best way to approach that restoration was actually to, because I couldn't move the statue itself, was to basically have the broken parts cast, molded, and then bring those into my studio. So I would have just the portion I need to work on. So I could basically create the new parts, fit them to what I knew the old parts were, and then go on site and attach them by doing the exact same thing there. So I worked with 
another local artist, uh, Mark Malonis, who's like a professional caster. He does all kinds of like crazy stuff in cast concrete, both sculptural and architectural. And he went there with me and I got to assist him, which was awesome. So I got to see the process of it, but use this like special kind of like fast setting poly gels to mold all the broken bits of this thing. And then he cast me versions that I could work with in my studio. And so that was really awesome, you know, to, to, you know, work with someone else on this thing and kind of see how, you know, it's done. Right. I love that. that I've, I, now I'm going to go to the park. Where is it in the Drew Hill park? Is it near well, the, or is it it's in the actually, I'm sorry, I think, I think you can get there. It's in a part of the park. That's a little bit closed off, but they open it up for events. It's right along the, um, <clears throat> that little lake there where they used to have like paddle boats way back in the day. And now right. they use it for various events and stuff like that. And weddings, you can kind of see it. It's very close to the main entrance. Okay. Yeah, the right. okay. I got to check it out. I definitely check it out. So as far as, do you teach any classes on this? As far, I know you teach in Micah, but do you teach like right. workshops where people can come in and see you actually in, in action? Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do teach in Micah one day a week, but I actually teach illustration over there, which is kind of a weird thing, but uh, something that started back when I was a graduate student at Micah and I was TAing in the illustration department. And that developed into an adjunct teaching position that's I've kind of been doing ever since. But I don't teach uh, stone carving, uh, again, because it is just such a colossal undertaking to like really put together all the stuff and materials and things to, to really do it right. I've over the years done, I think, one or two summer classes at MICA. Um, and they're great to work with because they're just, they fully, you know, trust me to, try to put things together the way uh, I want to do it there. But again, it's, it's, it's a lot to do it. And unfortunately anymore, I just don't really have the time um, to take another day out of the studio a week to, to deal with like teaching and stuff. I just, you know, the stone, to teach stone carving is you really have to put a lot into it to, to figure it out, do it right. And again, gather all the tools and materials and stuff. So when I've done it, I try to provide all that stuff because there's a lot of stone carving classes, workshops and stuff people can take, but then the students are required to like buy their own tools for that, which seems, I don't know, just not right. Because, you know, you'd spend a few hundred bucks buying these tools that you may just decide this is like not your thing. And you've wasted all this money in addition to the fee for the class and all that kind of thing. So no, I, I haven't really done a lot of like proper teaching uh, classes, uh, at least not regularly. Got you. Got you. So I know that you've done some things in Baltimore community you, you've spoken about and that you, you've talked to me about it. Tell a little bit of things like you're doing as far as community wise. I know you wrote, you sent it to me yesterday. You were talking about things you've been doing. In Baltimore. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So that, that one thing, which I think is like the coolest was the um, thing for the Baltimore city schools art program called arts every day, where they've basically created resources for their, all of their teachers. And they, they put them up obviously so they're online, they're accessible um, and they're, they're free. So they've gone in and talked with various artists or creators or makers around town and kind of gone into their studios and not beyond just doing like interviews with them, they've like documented a little bit of their process. And then they actually take this stuff back and create like tiered levels of learning kind of programming that relate to that particular work that this artist does so that the students have like an understanding of like, not only, you know, here's a fun craft we can do, but this is how it has a 
practical application in life beyond the classroom, which I, I think is always really helpful. It's like, I try to do that with my own students in general. It's to never give somebody a project that just feels like purely academic. It's like, hey, this would be a thing you might be asked to do someday. And so this is how we can relate it to not just our classroom experience, but also something out in the real world. I love that. I love that. I love that. So this is the, this is the hard part of the interview, okay? It's always the hard part. People get nervous oh. about this, all right? It's called, <laughs> rapid, it's called rapid fire. It's called rapid fire, okay? All right, hit me. All right. Drums or flats? Oh, drums, obviously. Blue cheese <laughs> or, <laughs> or ranch? Ranch. Your favorite art museum? Mm, the Walters. Top three sculptures, dead or alive? Sculptors that are alive. Oh, wow. So probably, um, geez, let's see. Patricia Piccinini, Ron Muick, and can't I remember the other name. Beth Kavanagh. Okay. Crabs or crab cakes? Oh, crabs. <laughs> Snowballs or ice cream? Man, I got to go ice cream. Oh, I know, not a local favorite. Snowball. I know, I know. I'm going to get some snowballs thrown at <laughs> my house now. Are you a hiker or are you a hiker or are you a bike rider? Biker. Okay. And what's the best advice you've ever received? Ooh, okay. So I got two. And I, so it's like, I've been thinking about these lately. I had to write up something on them. So I've gotten like two really important pieces of advice that are in conflict with each other. But I think that they help me professionally. So... As a student, I was told by a professor in Italy at one time, basically, you know, don't do what you know how to do because you know it's going to be good. Do what you don't know how to do because it might be bad, which sounds much better in Italian. But <laughs> when I was an apprentice, I was given the advice by my boss at the time, Tim Johnston, who I trained under directly. He said, go slow, take your time, and don't make any mistakes because that was the kind of level we were working at. And so I've always kind of had those two bits kind of in my head, pulling the string out of my ears on other ends in a way, because on the one hand, as an artist, you do always want to experiment and try new things. And I think that with all my like sculptural work, I try to do that, I try to innovate, come up with something new, do something in a different way. Even if no one's going to notice that I did things that way, mm -hmm. I'm trying something that I don't really know if it's going to work out um, because if it doesn't work out, well, that's a bummer, but, I've learned something and often I'll figure something else out along that path. So that comes through kind of a lot of the tools and things that I work with that I've either made myself or with other people. <clears throat> However, <laughs> there is a time to not make any mistakes. Like when, for instance, you're working on like a federal building or part of a church that's 150 years old and that stone can't be replaced. Like that's maybe not the best time to like <laughs> take a big chance. So, um, but I think in that case, it's the, the go slow part, which is again very hard sometimes because like work's been crazy and all these institutions and stuff I work with because of the changing nature of construction now, people expect things very fast. And so it is a real struggle to still have to remind myself, I've got to like chill out and be in a good calm headspace to do this stuff well, because if I don't and something goes wrong, you know, you know, it's not life or death. I'm not a doctor, but it's you know, pretty expensive if I have some kind of catastrophic failure. So that really cannot happen. And so it's, it's those two pieces of advice that I think are good because they work well together to kind of remind me I'm always trying to find 
balance uh, with the work that I'm doing and life in general. I love it, man. I, I do. I like, I like that. I like that. Take risks. You know, don't care. I like, I like that. I like, you like that. Um, what, so where can we find you on social media? Like, where can we find you? I see you doing some more TikTok things. I, I've been I'm noticing that. <laughs> but it makes sense though. It does make sense what you're doing. Okay. So here's the thing. Yeah. Full disclosure. <laughs> my wife is a director of communications. Like that's what she does. Communicating <laughs> is her thing. So she and actually several other people have been like, you need to put all these videos on TikTok because as anybody that has followed along on Instagram, that's basically the only social media that I'm active in at all because I'm not a great social media person. I, I'm not, I just can't, I can't keep up with it. I can't keep up with more than one for God's sake. And, and like, I totally flubbed on Facebook in the last several months. I did something anyway, things connecting. I wish everything would just feed from one source and it doesn't. So I've done, I put a lot of stuff on Instagram and I had been in this a recent project kind of documenting this process because it was all happening kind of very quickly every day. And so I just started documenting the whole process through reels. And then everybody has said, oh, you need to take these reels and put them on TikTok. That's where they need to be. They're all videos and stuff. I'm like, okay. So I tried to, I did start and activate a TikTok account. Um, and I've been slowly basically pushing that content onto it because they are these, you know, 30, 60 second video clips. And that's the place for it. But oh my God, like when I just, anytime I open TikTok, I'm like, this is trash. What is happening here? Like just constant, you know, and that is why I genuinely do like Instagram to the degree that I'm going to be on social media because it's, it's visual. You have to kind of create content to put on it. It's not very easy just to copy other people's stuff and post and repost things without thinking about it. You've got to actually, you know, it's, it's harder just to be a regurgitator. You have to be more of a creator in that place. Um, so yeah, so I'm just, there was, you know, my name, Sebastian Margarana, which I know is not the easiest thing because it's hard to spell. So where can um, we find you? Like where, where can we find you? Instagram, all that Instagram. Stuff. Well, you, yeah, I mean, like, let's, yeah. Promote yourself. This is where you promote your, where we can find uh, you. Just all the things at Sebastian Martirana, which is just, you know, <laughs> that is exactly um, hopefully you'll have show notes oh yeah I'll have, I'll have show notes and they will be there so that way you can click right to your page and when i when it comes up it'll be on instagram go right to your page and yeah it's it's so funny i mean it's like the long italian last name it, it intimidates people it's it's very phonetic it's said just like it's spelled m-a-r-t-o-r-a-n-a <laughs> it's spelled though people misspell sebastian more often than you, than you think too so uh, it's s-e-b-a-s-t-i-n not S-A-V. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm there. And I think, geez, I even do have a Twitter account technically, which <laughs> I barely use. It just depends on the, the, the content you're pushing. Like various you know, people are on various things. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I want to contact this person, but they're only on Twitter. They don't have an Instagram page or something like that. Um, you know, so what are you going to do? Or even if I'm doing something funny. Do you have anything going on on 2022? Do you have anything, anything exciting that we can see that's coming up? Oh yeah, um, I've got a handful of things coming up. I'm very lucky to, I've got a big kind of artistic commission coming up, which is cool, which is kind of how a lot of my sculpture work goes um, these days, not necessarily, but um, you know, if I don't have time or where like a lot of like people, essentially collectors of work will see stuff that I've done and kind of ask me if I have another idea in that vein, which is always awesome because I've always got another idea for something. So I've got um, one of those coming up. So I'm going to be making uh, another kind of biggish uh, sculpture based on some other work that I've been trying to do. 
more of, which is cool. And I've got some private commissions. I've got some, you know, really interesting kind of restoration jobs for uh, a historic cemetery in DC. It's called Oak Hill Cemetery. It's like one of the oldest, most beautiful cemeteries I've ever seen. And um, I've got some other institutional work uh, in DC that I can't really tell you more about it than that. <laughs> I love um, it. I love it. I love but, it. But uh, yeah, 2022 is going to be real busy. So it's, it's looking good. That's a good thing. And I appreciate you taking time. I'm glad we finally made it happen. I mean, it worked. Yeah. Uh, two Q's guys, we got to get together. Watch some March. I don't even March Madness is even be around. But let Q's Blacks <laughs> oh, will be here. John right. pretty soon. So we'll catch, hopefully, we can catch a game and whatnot. But thank That'd you for good. taking time out your day hanging out and just finally getting this done i really appreciate hey, it it was a pleasure thanks for like figuring it all out yeah i'd rather have done it live but you know like in person but things are just the world's got chaotic and just want to be safe safety is key right now but yep. and safety again, first thank you folks for listening if you want to check me out aaron uh no picture dark.com that's where you can find all the podcasts you can find this episode no picture dark no picture dark.com i'm on no picture dark on instagram facebook whatever you want to find me and you'll find this episode can't wait for you to hear this thank you so much again mr sebastian we appreciate it e with e now with a and we'll definitely uh look forward to a, a great year in 2022 love peace and happiness we're out folks later baltimore fiscal partners is a boutique cpa firm specializing in accounting and consulting services for nonprofits, small businesses and with experience running nonprofits and small businesses, they know that there's not always enough time at the end of the day for you to focus on your finances. Whether it's monthly bookkeeping or an annual audit, tax preparation or consulting, nonprofit or small business, Baltimore Fiscal Partners provides full range or tailored solutions that keep your goals and budget in mind. Learn more about Baltimore Fiscal Partners online at BaltimoreFiscal.com or follow them at Baltimore Fiscal on Facebook and Instagram.